somebody needs wine to get through their life, or, or if they need any substance to get through their life, what they actually probably need is support. What we're all hungry for is connection and community. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. As today's guest, Lauren Roberts says, healing is not pretty. It's not linear, it's not easy, and sometimes we might think that we've closed the chapter on a past hurt only to find that we circle back to it, responding to some inner invitation to heal at a deeper level this time around. Lauren Roberts is many things, a coach and facilitator, a yoga teacher, a community manager, a communicator, and she's also a sexual trauma survivor and someone who self-medicated with marijuana throughout her 20s before deciding to choose sobriety. Lauren, like me, experiences anxiety, OCD, and intrusive thoughts. In today's episode, she opens up about choosing sobriety and shares what she's learned so far on her up and down winding path of recovery and healing. She and I are talking specifically about experiences that fall somewhere on the spectrum of substance abuse and sexual trauma. And in particular, we talk about experiences that fall somewhere in the middle of those spectrums, that feel gray, that feel confusing. Any experiences on any part of these spectrums can feel incredibly confusing. And we rarely feel like we have concrete answers or resolutions, let alone definitive language for talking about them. So together, Lauren and I are exploring what it means to choose a healing path while wrestling with uncertainty and questions about how to name or label or define our experience and even ourselves. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi. I thought we could start by just having you Tell everyone a little bit about yourself, where you live, what most of your days look like, what you like to do for fun, whatever you feel like sharing about yourself tonight. Yeah, well, um, this is a question that I do not feel good at answering. I'm (laughs) Um, the same way. I always feel guilty asking people that because it's really hard to answer for me. (laughs) Yeah, and I was in a phase in the last couple of years where for a while there I was doing a lot of job interviews and that's like the first thing everybody says, and I'd always panic. And I never quite nailed that like elevator pitch. So (laughs) I'm just going to be as real as I can be. Um, So I am 31. Um, I currently live in Indianapolis. I grew up in Indiana, and most of my family is around here. Um, I've also spent a few years in DC, and then also a couple of years in New York recently. I guess the best way to describe what I do is that I spend my time working with organizations that align with my values of justice and healing and social change. Um, I'm super fortunate that these days um, that includes a group called Citizen Well, um, which was created by a woman named Carrie Kelly, who I guess she kind of came out of like the yoga activism world. that I got connected to a few years ago. I'm a yoga teacher and did a training with a group called Off the Mat Into the World, which I highly recommend if anybody is interested in yoga for trauma and making the world a better place. And um, after that training, kind of 
got really inspired by some work Carrie was doing um, that was being called Yoga Votes at the time. Um, and basically it was just bridging people who practice yoga into political action. And so I created a local version of that in Indianapolis. And I'm super fortunate that since 2017, I've gotten to actually work for Citizen Well. Um, after the 2016 election, the mission got more urgent, which I guess is not surprising. And um, we're really just bridging folks who care about wellness, who maybe meditate, do yoga, eat organic, to start being connected to these movements for social change that have been at work for decades, if not longer. So um, I do some community management for them. I help with social media. I help facilitate events sometimes. Um, and then I also do some work for the New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault, just kind of communications and fundraising. Um, I am a person in recovery from trauma, substance abuse. Um, I've struggled with my mental health on and off over the years. And through that, have really learned a lot of different tools um, that have helped me get well um, to different degrees, <laughs> depending on <laughs> what's going on in my life. And so I'm trying to move into a space of helping other people get connected to their own inner wisdom, um, specifically women, and um, share the tools that I've learned over the years and also help to connect them to ways to get into action around social change and issues that matter to them. Because what I found for myself is the more committed I have gotten to healing what I've been through and what I've experienced the more I'm able to see the connections between my own experience and what's happening in the world and on a collective level, and also getting really clear on where I have benefited from the way things are, because I'm a white woman um, who was born in a body that matches the gender that I am. And in the process, I've learned how to spend my privilege in a way that is, um, making me more of an ally and not somebody who necessarily has to be like leading the charge. So I'm okay. I want to go back in time a little bit. Cause I'm curious about this. Cause you did, you mentioned like substance abuse. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what your family culture was around substances like alcohol and drugs. And like, what did you see as a kid? You know, what was your kind of storyline with that? Like I grew up in a family where my parents never drank. I didn't really see too much. Mm. There was some history of addiction in my extended family. I just kind of labeled all of that as bad. So I was very judgy and moralizing and didn't really drink until <laughs> um, college, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what your what your relationship was like with that stuff. Um, so my family, my extended family um, has a lot of folks who struggled with addiction. Uh, one of my parents rarely drank maybe like a glass of wine, you know, at at like a, um, holiday dinner or something. Um, the other parent I'm, I'm mindful about how much to share that isn't like my story, but another parent did not have that kind of relationship with alcohol. Um, there was a lot of like, what I see now is self-medicating, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but only, you know, only that person really knows 
what's real for them. I, I didn't really drink until college either. And I went to a big party school. IU is kind of just known as a huge drinking school. And that was the first time I had ever heard of anybody pre-gaming. I'm like, what? You're drinking mm-hmm. before you go out to drink? Mm-hmm. Um, that was like the purpose was to get drunk. Um, and I, I drank like not anything, not a crazy amount compared to my peers in college. Um, you know, it was always on a binge. I wasn't, I've never been somebody who like had alcohol around the house and drank by myself. I should say too, my drug of choice that ultimately like got me into recovery was marijuana. Like I, I smoked heavily for a few years there, like all day, every day at the end. Um, yeah. So alcohol for me was never, never the biggest problem, but it was a problem. Um, I would use it in social situations to feel more comfortable, more accepted, um, to kind of lessen my anxiety (laughs) for sure. Um, I, I was bullied a lot, um, when I was growing up like elementary school and into middle school and, um, actually I guess in high school too, now that I think about it. And so I, social anxiety has been something I still struggle with. And, um, alcohol was always just this easy thing to reach for to kind of just calm my nerves, feel connected to people, take the edge off of all those social situations. So that was definitely how I used it once I got to college. When did you start using marijuana? Was that also in college or did that kind of come later on? It's interesting. The way pot came up for me most of the times when it got really out of control, um, was when I was living with people who were daily smokers. Mm -hmm. So I had a roommate my junior year who just always had it. It was always around. And what I knew was that once I got high, the noise in my head would just calm down. It was almost like I was on my own back all the time, just this tight hold of it's all that perfectionism stuff of like, I'm not good enough. Nobody likes me. Um, you know, I am not working hard enough. That would just shut the fuck up yeah. <laughs> for, for those few hours or whatever. And that's when I started making it a habit. Um, you know, for some people it does work medicinally. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it really, in a way for me, it really was medicine, but it was medicine I was prescribing myself and not using in a way that, you know, like a medical professional would tell me to use it. I was using it to just escape my feelings and not deal with all this stuff that had accumulated over the years. Um, and like, I always kind of knew, I'm like, I don't think I use this the way other like quote unquote normal people do. Mm -hmm. Like I just want more and more and more. And even the times I didn't necessarily want more, I'm like, man, like I feel so much better when I'm high. Like that can't be good. Um, and it got to a point where I'd be obliterated like every off hour just to even feel okay. I needed to be like a little bit high to like get to a baseline. Mm. It's like, I would start off in the hole every day and my mood was so low all day until I could get home and just get high. I started having intrusive thoughts about, um, some sexual abuse that happened to me when I was nine. And if anyone is familiar with childhood sex abuse, it's typically not what we are told it is like in the culture, there's this idea that sexual assault is always violent and it's always this clear cut, like this person is evil and they hurt you and you know, it's bad, but that's really not it. I think what keeps people silent and, um, stuck on it for so long. And what was true for me is that it's usually very coercive. 
it's usually not cut and dry. Um, and for me, like that was the experience when I was nine and I really, and I still struggle with like this sense that it was somehow my fault or I was complicit, even though intellectually, I know that's not true. And so around 25, I started having these thoughts about it and, you know, work was getting, there were some factors at work that were getting more stressful. I had a really verbally abusive boss. He left and I was still just really struggling. I could not, um, focus during the day, even though I really cared about the work I was doing, I was having trouble connecting with people. And then I went through a breakup and then (laughs) right after the breakup, I started yoga teacher training. And so I was spending every weekend, um, all day, Saturday and Sunday for a summer, like just practicing yoga, getting into my body, having to feel my feelings, frankly, because I was being present with myself. And there was a woman in my teacher training who talked very openly about being sexually abused by a cousin, which is what happened to me. It was a family member, an extended family member, which is pretty common. Um, and so all of these factors of like, um, you know, using a drug and then all of this yoga and practices that like forced me to just be with myself led me to just kind of fall apart. And, um, I ended up making the choice to move back in with my parents in Indiana. I left DC for a few months there. I didn't really smoke at all. Um, but then like in my new job here in Indiana, I made a friend who smoked and it was around, um, and just over the years, it became a daily habit again. And I, it was a gradual thing where I was always saying, well, it's not a problem because I'm not buying it myself. Mm-hmm. But then I started buying it myself. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. I was like, well, it's not a problem because I'm only smoking at night or on the weekends. But then I started smoking earlier in the day. And, and then there would be phases where I would be able to quit and go completely cold turkey for stretches of like several months at a time. And that for me was evidence that I didn't have a problem. Um, cause I'm like, well, if I can quit on my own, that's not addiction, but like, that's not how that works. <laughs> like just because I could white knuckle sobriety doesn't mean that the substance was working for me. Um, yeah. And I was already really struggling with my mental health. Um, I had worked for, um, a local political campaign where it was just a really toxic environment. I had a really, um, abusive relationship with the person I reported to. And then the candidate I was working for was just not a very kind person either. And, um, after I quit that, I was struggling with thoughts of hurting myself. There was like a little bit of self-harm, but nothing like really serious. My partner at the time and I had planned to move to New York that fall of 2016. Um, he had gotten a job and so had moved in September. I was waiting until after the election because there was some work I was doing with this yoga votes stuff here in Indiana that I wanted to finish up. And I did not, you know, think that the election was going to go the way that it did. And so I got on a plane two days after that, you know, just completely in pieces, but also weirdly like super clear that I wanted to be part of changing things like galvanized and like I spent a couple of years there, like most of 2017 and, um, half of 2018, just like working super hard to be part of changing things and making the world better and keeping people safe. 
Um, meanwhile, I was smoking heavily all day, every day, struggling with thoughts of hurting myself, my intrusive thoughts. My OCD was so out of control that I was so desperate. And I actually reached out to your aunt, Cheryl, um, and for anyone listening that Cheryl Paul, and she's amazing. I was so lucky to get to work for her for a few months. Um, and she recommended a great coach who I still work with today, Sarah Kessner. Um, and so I finally like in this desperate state, got some help, got sober ish, um, and had a stretch where, you know, I was just trying to get myself together. I didn't want to get back to a place where I was wanting to hurt myself. And so, yeah, end of June last year, I just had enough. And through some miracle, like I had been doing some work for a group called Fearless Beauty. And the woman who runs it had a friend of a friend of a friend who was in recovery. And I got her phone number and did a WhatsApp call because she was in Iceland And she was like on the phone with me as I was flushing everything. And, and I went to a recovery meeting. There's something called yoga for 12 step recovery, or maybe it's yoga of 12 step recovery, Y 12 SR, which was created by a genius woman named Nikki Myers, who I'm very proud to say is from Indianapolis. (laughs) Um, So I went to one of those meetings by some miracle. Again, I was the only person who showed up. The teacher happened to be somebody whose drug of choice was also marijuana. And she's like, no, you're in the right place. Like it's a really hard drug to struggle with because the culture is telling you it's not addictive. You know, the physical impacts, the life impacts may not be as dramatic as somebody who is like at a rock bottom with alcohol, but like a bottom is a bottom, you know, um, active substance abuse is like an elevator that's going down from the top floor of a building. You can get off at any floor you want. You don't have to hit rock bottom to get help if something is not working for you and not only not working for you, but actually making your life kind of suck. Um, and that was the message I needed to hear because I spent so long stuck in my head, similar to the sex abuse as a kid, like, was it abuse? Wasn't it? Do I have a problem with substance? Don't I, I don't check all these boxes for alcoholism, but it seems like alcohol really messes stuff up for me. (laughs) Like there were just all this back and forth in my head instead of just looking at like, but how is it impacting me? Because the rest of that is just noise. That's just obsessive thoughts, wanting to understand and control and avoid dealing with what needs to be dealt with. Um, And yeah, so I started going to 12-step meetings. I went to one every single day until like December of last year. I still go to them sometimes. For me, my recovery is more of a patchwork these days because, um, I don't know. There's a lot about 12 step programs that doesn't work for me and that I need to kind of leave behind. But, um, I have found that the community and the connection and all of that has been so key and yeah. So coming up on a year, it's pretty crazy to think that that much time has passed. Thank you for sharing all of that because I think that Maybe this is just me and my black and white thinking, but I know that Mm -hmm. I used to think of things as like, it's this or that. Like either Mm -hmm. someone is an addict or they're not. They're an alcoholic or they're not. They Mm -hmm. are sober or they're not. And like, I loved actually that you used the word sober-ish because like just part of growing up for me has been realizing how much uncertainty there is around things and Uh 
And some of it, I think, is worrying a lot about what other people think or how other people will react or respond to your perception of your experience or how you express it. Like, I don't know if that's true for you, but I know for myself, like, you know, I shared with you that um, I, I went through a period where if there was a weekend where I was hanging out with friends and I was drinking, I was definitely drinking to get drunk and I was often blacking out and then having experiences that I didn't remember or only partially remembered that really were very upsetting. Um, and I remember being like, well, I'm not an alcoholic, you know, cause like I'm not, I'm not drinking every day. I'm not drinking alone, blah, blah, blah. This is kind of, isn't this just kind of normal college eight, college, well, I was like 22, 23, but like it's, it's age appropriate behavior, right? Like the culture makes that almost seem like normal, but mm-hmm. the question was, I remember like my therapist at the time was like, said someone could drink once a year and be an alcoholic because of how they respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and she wasn't saying you are an alcoholic, but she was saying it's not that black and white, you know, like yes. it's, and I remember calling up a therapist who specializes in like sexual trauma And I remember saying to her, like, I'm not like, I don't really know what to call it. I'm not sure it was sexual assault. I don't really remember. I don't really know. But I I think, you know, it was like, I think I I'm experiencing trauma from it. And she was like, it is about your perception of it and how it affected you. Um, And similar to you, like I, I was constantly trying to find like an answer to all of it, like, maybe I can just drink a little bit, you know, and that would be fine. And like, I can, I can have one Mm -hmm. drink and stop, but I always want more. And Mm -hmm. like, if I'm at dinner and I say like, I'm just going to have one drink, half of my brain for the rest of dinner is thinking about how much I wish I could have another one. Yeah. And I feel like, especially for women, especially for women who are parenting, um, the whole like one or wine two culture. drinks every, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. The mommy wine stuff is yeah. so, uh, I, I don't have children. Um, I have a lot of friends who do, and it just breaks my heart that anybody feels like to get through parenthood, they need to self-medicate yeah. that way. Um, and that, that's not saying anything about my friends. I'm talking more about the messages that women are sent from the alcohol industry and Holly Whitaker, um, her Instagram is just at Holly. Um, she created a program that used to be called hip sobriety. Now it's called Tempest and it's sort of an alternative sobriety school and community for anybody who's examining the relationship with alcohol. But I would say it could probably apply to anybody struggling with any substance. Um, but she talks a lot about how the alcohol industry, it's, it's big alcohol, just like there's big agribusiness, just like there's, you know, big banks. It, it, it is a, an industry that is out there to make more money. And they, over the last few decades have really started focusing their marketing to women. Yeah. Um, and, and our culture acts like it is totally fine. There are all these t-shirts about like Rose all day yeah. and like mommy needs her wine. And just that kind of messaging is so 
sad and um, really missing the point that if somebody needs wine to get through their life um, or, or if they need any substance to get through their life, what they actually probably need is support. They probably yeah. need community care. They need a partner who shows up for them. They need neighbors. They need friends. Like what we're actually all hungry for is connection and community. And for some of us, we replace that with substance because it's a shortcut. Um, but yeah, what you were just saying about like, you, you know, you didn't check all these boxes for like alcoholism, but then at the same time when you would have just one or two drinks, which is something I probably, I probably could go out to dinner and have a glass of wine and not relapse into like oblivion. But I know like, first of all, I don't want to take the chance. Um, cause what I noticed when I would quit smoking for different periods is when I would pick it back up, it was usually after an episode of binge drinking, like there would be a wedding or some other social event, usually with, at the time it was with my ex, um, cause he was somebody who liked to go out and drink. And oftentimes I would go out if I did go out with him, which became a rare occurrence toward the end, I would drink to kind of keep up and feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it was usually after like, a few weeks after that, whatever was happening in my brain chemistry would lead me back to weed. Like it, it impaired my decision-making and I know where weed is going to lead. So like, I don't want to take any chance of like, Oh, a glass of wine with dinner sounds great. Cause like you, I'll probably most likely think, no, this isn't enough. Like I want to get drunk. I want to escape myself. I don't want to be in my body. I don't want to be with all of this like crap that I have to work through and all of this trauma that is still living inside me because it sucks. It's really uncomfortable. Um, and you know, I did talk to different therapists over the years and doctors and about how I was using substance and nobody ever really raised a red flag. Mm. Um, in fact, I had one therapist be like, yeah, we can be a good way to like access your feelings, but take the edge off so you can actually feel them. Mm. So I was actually getting the opposite message instead of what I needed to hear, which was, it sounds like this might be making your life worse. (laughs) And, um, you know, impairing your decision-making. There was probably a voice inside of you, the fact that you were telling them about it. Like you probably kind of knew and maybe were even kind of hoping someone would say you should stop. Yeah. Or, and here, and here's how, and, and it's, it's really about like, I think we are trained at least in the culture that we are in. I don't know about other parts of the world, but at least here in the West, I think we are trained to externalize wisdom, like to assume that doctors know better, therapists know better, our friends know better, society knows better, like what works for us and what's best for us. Um, and what's actually true is that people in medical school are not really trained all that much on substance use disorders and what that looks like. They're not really trained to treat the whole person and to look at things in like to look at the full picture of what is, yeah, of of what's impacting people, you know, how poverty impacts somebody's experience of health. Like there's all these stats on, you know, disparities, um, in health outcomes for people of color versus white folks and people in poverty versus people not like, and, and so like the systems that we are already swimming in are playing out in the way that we're also treating people with addiction. Um, when I go, when I go to 12 step meetings, um, and granted, I am in Indiana, but um, the city I live in is about a third folks of color. The rooms I go in, though, for these meetings are still, I would say, 95% white. 
um, overwhelmingly male, like the people who actually end up getting help, um, are people who look like me <laughs> and, and, and it's also, you know, 12 step programs, AA was designed by, um, white men in the 1930s. And a lot of the messaging, I mean, th this is part of why I think it's so cool that things like Tempest exist now. Um, because for me, I, there are certain meetings I can't go to because I don't want to sit there and be told how powerless I am. I already feel powerless as a survivor of sexual assault and all this other stuff. Maybe straight white guys need to be reminded of that and be taken down a notch. But for me, that doesn't work. Calling myself an addict isn't something I do anymore because I think that all of us have the potential to struggle with addiction. And addict isn't like what you're talking about. It's not a black and white thing. It's not a binary state. You either are or you aren't. It's like if you abuse any drug or any addictive substance or, you know, work too much or um, put too much value on like the person or, or seek outside of yourself for love and validation, like all of that unhealthy stuff is possible for anybody. And it's not about somebody's an addict and somebody isn't. We all have the potential to struggle with those things. I think of pretty much everything existing on a spectrum. And I think addiction and sexual trauma, both very much like so many I, obviously there's a very extreme end of the spectrum where it is very clear and concrete like someone has just lost everything to their addiction or mm -hmm. you know someone was violently brutally raped and there is mm -hmm. like a very extreme end of the spectrum and then i think a lot of people experience things on the spectrum that leave them feeling really confused and often ashamed mm-hmm and that question of, like you said, wondering about like your complicity in, like, you know, as a child, wondering about your complicity in what happened or it's hard enough to know how to feel, you know, um, or what to think about these things. Um, not that there is a, a way that you should feel you know like that's part of, I think that's the key is actually just letting yourself feel however you do about it and not judging yourself because yeah. um, I think when you also compare yourself to people who are on a very extreme end of the spectrum it's easy to just be like I need to just get over myself because it's not that bad you know um, mm -hmm. and yet I know for me, like the body doesn't lie. Like my body has very clearly told me that some things happened that weren't okay. You know, I'm curious, like what, yeah. how, how your body has factored into your healing and recovery and what role yoga has played in that? Because I know like, well, and I'll also say like with alcohol, I probably would still drink if I didn't get horrific acid reflux when <laughs> you know when I would have like I the last time I can remember having two glasses of wine was probably like two years ago and it wasn't even getting drunk or anything it, it was just like at dinner with a friend I had two glasses of wine and I woke up that night feeling like I was gonna choke to death like wow it was horrible and like that was, was like nope yeah my body <laughs> was like no no mm -hmm. and I would wake up in the middle of the night like if I when I did get drunk in the past, like I would wake up in the middle of the night with a panic attack or I'd spend the rest of the next day feeling physically horrible and or extremely anxious about whatever happened the night before. So like my body was telling me like, no, no. 
and it's like taken me a really long time to listen to my body um so I'm curious yeah like what role yoga has played and just like how your what your relationship to your body has been like in healing and recovery it's not easy to grow up in a female well it's not easy to grow up in any body um in the culture we live in but especially the messages that are sent to women like really seeped into my psyche I can't remember a time ever of not disliking my body. I still struggle. This is something like I am still trying to figure out. Like I remember being maybe like three and looking at my stomach in the mirror and just thinking I'm fat. Um, and I had like, I had a babysitter who I know I now know was struggling with anorexia, but I remember seeing her do the same thing, looking in the mirror and saying how fat she was. And there was always women in my family were constantly dieting and trying to lose weight. So I, I observed a lot of that. So even before I was nine and the sexual abuse happened, I was already very disconnected from my body. My body was already like an enemy and it was there to be perfected and controlled. I also grew up doing ballet and that is very much the whole thing <laughs> in, in, uh, in dance studios and that, and that kind of space. Um, so yeah, yoga, um, I, I started it just honestly as like exercise. I, it it was something to like get in shape and to look better. But what I started noticing is that the more I went, the better I felt. Um, Like emotionally, I just felt like I could handle my stressful job better. I was more patient with people (laughs) and with myself because I think anytime, so yoga um, in Sanskrit, the word yoga means union. So it's um, bringing together the body, the breath, the mind, the spirit, just being fully present, um, in wholeness, because that's who we really are. Like we're always whole. We just forget all the time, um, and reach for all of these things like substance or other people or achievement or whatever to feel whole, even though we don't need it. Um, and, and I, and enough, I, I was so, so lucky that the teachers I ended up in class with, one of them was Faith Hunter, um, who is just fabulous. And so there were these very experienced teachers I was going to in DC who were also saying a lot of these messages I needed to hear in class, like, um, things around enoughness and that, you know, things that felt empowering to me to hear. And so that combined with like actually being in my body and not even just being in my body, but doing something nice for it. And also challenging it and learning um, to really respect and appreciate what it was able to do started just settling me down. Um, I it, it's my my physical practice has ebbed and flowed over the years. What has been a bigger learning for me is just the I guess philosophy around yoga of this idea of wholeness. This idea that I'm not my thoughts um, in recovering from OCD, that has just been like <laughs> the most important thing I have to remind myself of every single day. Because um, for a long time, I just thought my body was this vehicle for my brain and that I was my brain and I am my thoughts. But I had a teacher say a few years ago, you know, just like it's the heart's job to beat, it's the lungs' job to breathe, it's the mind's job to create thoughts. And that doesn't mean that that's who we are. That, that's part of why, like, this work of connecting um, 
spiritual practice with activism and political action feels really urgent. Cause I think that for me and for a lot of people, yoga has kind of been this doorway of not only waking up to what's going on with myself and really having to look at it, but also waking up to what's going on in the world and really having to look at it and understand where I'm complicit, understanding where I have responsibility, understanding where I can show up and be part of shifting things out of what they're currently stuck in. And to come back to your question about like being in the body, I think so many of us are just so disconnected from our bodies. And sometimes I wonder too, just like with meditation, if everybody had some sort of way of just being with themselves and being in their bodies, like what kind of world we would live in if we could all just be present with whatever's going on with us. Cause I think sometimes I know for myself, like the days where I am the cruelest to other people, the most judgmental, the most self-centered are the days when I'm disconnected from myself and when I'm denying and trying to run away from my own stuff. Um, and the times I've felt the most hurt by other people, it not to excuse their behavior, but I know that it's coming from a hurt place inside of them. There's like that cheesy AA saying that hurt people hurt people. Um, and that's true on an individual level, on a community level, and also on a collective level. It's so interesting too, because like when you were saying that people who, who need a substance to get through the day really want connection. Mm-hmm. I think the irony is that we often fear losing connection without the substance because, yeah. I mean, I'll speak to like, you know, dominant culture in, in this country, as you kind of mentioned before, revolves around distracting and numbing out. And just like in the case of alcohol, it's so many communal activities revolve around alcohol, you know? Yes. So everything, everything revolves around Even yoga. Even yoga. When I go to to a yoga studio and I see that they have like, you know, wine Wednesdays or whatever, or, Mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to like, I feel like it's so important for me to keep my judgment in check and try to have a sense of lightness and not to be moralizing. And I try to find that, that middle way. But it is just hard because I know that there are people who are who are sober, who can like go to a bar and they're like, you know what? It doesn't really bother me. I know I'm not going to drink and it's fine. Mm-hmm. But for other people, that's not the case. And especially like early on, I think yeah. when I was like 22 and my therapist was like, yeah, I really think maybe you just shouldn't drink. I was like, huh, because I was like, OK, I've always been this shy, quiet person who has, you know, like, who gets nervous around in social situations, I finally let loose and decided to be a normal person and drink, (laughs) you know? And, like, I'm more fun and I'm doing things I, like, my inhibitions are lowered. And now I have to go back to being a weirdo again who doesn't, (laughs) you know, who who can't do what everyone else is doing. And, like, I, I don't, like... I even realized like for me, sometimes drinking was like, it actually, sometimes it was was like, okay, I'm anxious. Sometimes I actually was bored because I was bored in, in loud crowded bars where I couldn't have a conversation with someone. Oh my God. I was bored and I was like, well, if I just get drunk, it'll go by faster. 
and everything will just kind of blur out and I can just kind of float above it until it's over and then I can go home. But at least I was social and I, you know, and I was with people. It's just, it's really ironic that we want connection so badly and yet we fear that if we give up some of these things, we're going to lose that connection because so much revolves around it. It can be isolating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it does. And that that's part of why meetings work. Um, you know, I'm not saying 12 step is the answer. It's definitely not for everybody, but the reason I still go to meetings is because then I'm reminded that I'm not alone in it. Um, and I've also met some of the best people I've ever met who are in recovery. Um, and, and like showing up and doing the work on themselves and just taking responsibility and waking up to all of the things I am dreading, like the next wedding I have to go to, or I have a, I have a friend who's getting married soon. And, um, the like bachelorette situation is something I'm like, you know, I, and it'll, I'm sure there will be great parts about it. It'll be great to see people and catch up and be there for her. And at the same time, like the idea of doing a bar crawl makes me want to pull my hair out. (laughs) So it's, I've also had to learn like when, um, when it's okay for me to bail early and Mm -hmm. just be like, I'm, I just can't. Um, and, and I'm not somebody, I don't really struggle with, I'm afraid I'll drink if I go into a space. That's not really a thing, but what is a struggle is, Oh, now I have to feel that boredom or, or struggle to hear people and speak loudly over the music to even like connect. Cause yeah, it's, that's what it's all about is connection. And, um, especially if you, and I think you've probably said you identify this way, but as like a highly sensitive person, (laughs) those those situations are overwhelming anyway. Yeah. So overstimulating. And I get so tired. I always, even when I was drinking, I would just get so tired in those situations. And, um, and I think that's why, like, I gravitated to a different drug of choice. That's mm-hmm. more about, like, you know, in the moment it feels like I'm connecting to spirit or, like, mm-hmm. just more creative and I can have these, like, deep, intense conversations. I'm able to do that now without a drug, and that's awesome. Um, but, yeah, it's everything in our culture revolves around alcohol. And it's not that everybody's doing it. It feels like everybody's doing it. And I will say since summer started – it's like hard for me to scroll through Instagram sometimes because it feels like everything is about outdoor drinking or whatever. It's, it's just, it feels like alcohol is everywhere. Um, and it could also be, you know, I'm coming up on a year, maybe I'm just more sensitive and this transition is coming up. So it's kind of bringing up more of my stuff around it, but yeah, it definitely feels like it's everywhere. And as far as like yoga studios offering that stuff, I, 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 I'm like you, I, I don't want to judge anybody. I also know it's hard to own a business and events like that. I'm sure are like easy money and, um, bring in people and, and that kind of event might bring somebody to yoga who wouldn't otherwise check it out. Right. So that's great. And yeah, I, my heart goes out to the person who might be newly sober or might be questioning their relationship with alcohol. And then they see something like that and think, Oh, yeah, maybe I don't actually have a problem. It's okay. And that might keep them stuck in their pain even longer than it needs to. Um, especially a substance like alcohol, people forget like it is a neurotoxin. There's new research that is showing a very clear link to cancer. There are so many stories of women who've gotten breast cancer after, um, struggling with alcohol for a long time. And 
to me, that's, that's not yoga. Yoga is about connecting and being whole and alcohol is taking us out of that. Um, so that makes me, that makes me sad when I see stuff like that at the same time, it's not, you know, it's not black and white. Yeah. One of those things. And I think like, I know for me, it's definitely way easier than at 22 because at 22, like binge drinking is normalized, you know, like Mm -hmm. blacking out is normalized in our culture. Um, whereas now a lot of people by virtue of getting older, having jobs, spouses or partners, babies, whatever, like Mm -hmm. they're not the cult, you know, it's not quite the same. Like, so if there is a 22 year old listening right now who feels like, you know, I can't be sober and have any sort of social life because everyone's just getting drunk all the time. Like, I think to a degree, it definitely gets a little bit better as you get older because more people just kind of fake, you know, definitely get more moderate. Um, but I think like, yeah, like you said, I, I too sometimes like I did, there was a period where I felt more isolated because I just didn't want to be in those situations. Not again, I can go to a bar and not drink. I'm not, you know, um, it's more like I just don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and that's part of it is looking at, okay, if, if the fear around getting sober or stopping drinking or whatever it is for you is about, you're afraid you're going to lose your friends. Part of me wants to ask what kind of friends those are. Right. Um, and, and if you really have that much in common outside of drinking and that's not to be judgmental, I think that's super common. Um, and, and I think it, but I also think it's a big reason why some people take longer than they have to, to make a change that's actually going to make their life a lot better. And what other kinds of things are you filling your life up with that make you feel good and like you're living in your values and finding like-minded people? Um, Yeah. One of the best things I've heard is like, to say no to something, you have to be saying yes to something else. Like you can't yeah. just be saying no to things. Um, yeah. And like, I definitely, I never thought I was going to like lose my friends. I more was just like, I don't, I want to just be carefree. Like as someone who has struggled with anxiety since I was a little, little kid, like I just want to be able to let loose and, you know, mm-hmm. like be like every quote unquote everyone else. And not miss out on things. I already miss out on so much, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it was more of like an internal thing. But I know that there are things too where even just like for me, if I don't know what to do with my hands, you know, I'll get like a seltzer with lime and it's like, hey, this, I'm holding a drink and, (laughs) you know, like, Mm -hmm. and that tastes great and I can stand (laughs) there and no one has to know what's in my glass or not. Like, you also don't have to be, like, announcing to people necessarily. Like, you know, like, you can stand there with your your seltzer and lime and talk to that person who's drunk and they don't, you know, you don't Mm -hmm. have, you don't owe them anything. You don't owe anyone. Like, to get through a situation, you don't have to be... Yeah. Saying like, no, I don't drink, you know, like you can do whatever you got to do for yourself to like make that more bearable in those situations where you kind of, you know, you need to be there, but you're uncomfortable and. Yeah. That will be me at these weddings, (laughs) you know, and I will probably go home early, Yeah, you know, or I will take a break and walk around the block Yep. or, you know, I, I just, 
for me, I've honestly just been able to not even be in those situations. I'm super lucky that way though, that I didn't have a lot of social life that revolved around drinking, um, to begin with or smoking actually, cause I was doing it by mm-hmm. myself. So, um, but yeah, like there are ways to kind of be in those situations without feeling like it needs to be this dramatic thing. Um, it's interesting because earlier I just realized in the first question you asked me, part of it was about what do I do for fun? And I don't think I answered it. (laughs) And I think part of the reason is that like even a year sober, I'm still figuring out what's fun for me because in our culture and in the like social groups that I've been part of, um, and sort of like the subcultures of the college I went to in Washington, DC and New York city, where actually some people don't grow out of binge drinking, by the way, like yeah, certain, I know. certain it's cities that actually it's just gets everyone. worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's also a lot more to do these days that doesn't revolve around alcohol at the same time, even though yes, everything does revolve around alcohol. There's also a lot that doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me too, what's been helpful is, when I hang out with a friend, not necessarily making it just dinner or like sitting across from each other talking, but going and doing something like doing an activity, Mm -hmm. um, going somewhere and experiencing that together, that has really helped take any of the, I don't even want to say pressure because I never feel pressure to drink these days, but just any like weirdness, um, kind of gets set aside when we're doing something else. I love also doing something like like I love going for a walk or a hike with someone or like something where again, like kind of you're in your bodies, you know, and like maybe connecting to nature or you're doing something that actually feels really good for your body together. Like that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. And in recovery, I found a lot of friends who like to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, the person I'm dating now, I mean, it's like a total 180 from my last relationship where like, that's, that's what we do. We go outside and do things or make food together Mm -hmm. or go do yoga related stuff or go to a meeting. Like, and not that all of your friends and all of your intimate partners have to be somebody in recovery. If this is a direction you feel like you want to go in, but it does help just to find people who share values and interests Mm -hmm. and where not that they have to be non-drinkers, but it does help if they are too. <laughs> yeah, it can be hard when your partner does use like yeah. a substance or whatever that you're actively not using. And like there yeah. can definitely be tension there. And like that's why I think it is also important to acknowledge the difficulty and like the loss around and even mm-hmm. like the grief. Like, Yeah, totally. I think there can be a letting go of certain things when you choose to to let go of a substance and like, mm-hmm. like, yeah, sometimes I still think like, yeah, it, it was really fun to be drunk sometimes, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's not, weed was my best friend. Yeah. Like, I like, do miss it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to be like honest about that too, because again, it helps us not go into the black and white thinking or the judgment of other people so much when you can be like, yeah, I mean, it was fun <laughs> sometimes. Like it wasn't yeah. always a bad thing, but I'm just making this choice because I know that ultimately, you know, there's something better for me. Once I consciously decided to not get drunk anymore and then consciously decided to just not drink alcohol, like I would hang out with friends one night and other people would be drinking and I would wake up the next morning and I'd have this moment where I'd be like, I feel great. 
-hmm. Like, I don't feel sick. I don't feel anxious. I don't feel shaky. You know, like, I feel great and I'm ready to, like, have a great day. (laughs) And it's, like, such a good feeling. So that's what I'm choosing instead, you know? Yeah. And so with weed, for me, there were never physical hangovers. I don't – maybe some other people experience that. But for me, it was more emotional kind of hangovers. Um, and, and it did get to the point where I would have to smoke first thing in the day, kind of like how some people need a coffee first thing in the morning. It became like that for me where I didn't feel right until I was a little bit high. Um, and it's so freeing to just not have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. Like not even the not being emotionally hungover thing, my anxiety, I, I gave my, I've been giving myself a year before looking at maybe going back on medication. I have not been medicated since 2017, um, for depression or anxiety at the time when I went off, it was probably not the best time. I probably should have stayed on a little longer. Um, but I, I just wanted to give myself some time to even out. And I have found that my brain chemistry, it's not easy all the time to work with, but it's so much easier than it was when I was messing with it all the time with alcohol or weed or whatever. Um, and, but what's so the feeling that I love now is I am not having to think about, um, you know, where like if I'm running low, when I would run low on weed, I would get anxiety about like, okay, I gotta like figure out how to get more soon. And I, I'm not spending any money on it anymore. It's like, I don't have to maintain a habit. Um, And I also don't have to feel this sense of unworthiness when I'm interacting with people now. Like, do they know that I have this thing that I do that's not the healthiest, not super socially acceptable, even though it kind of is too. Like, I just, I don't, I don't have to, it's just one huge thing off of the list of shit that I used to worry about all the time. And I also can trust myself to show up and follow through and make good choices now that's that's a good feeling too (laughs) yeah I I remember worrying about like am I an acceptable level of drunk right now like (laughs) you know what I mean am I too drunk am I just a little too drunk or am I like not drunk enough like yeah it's crazy it does complicate things a lot actually it really does it's a lot simpler when you're just like yeah I'm just gonna not (laughs) yep um yeah you said something about freedom And Mm -hmm. the topic of freedom is something that's so interesting to me right now because the concept of freedom has always been scary to me. Like as much as I have wanted freedom like from anxiety, at the same time, I, I realized in recent years like I have always almost been afraid of that because anxiety and OCD are all about control. Like, mm-hmm. I have been trying to control <laughs> the universe since I yep. was, like, three or something. Same here. And so the idea of freedom used to actually, like, scare me. I'm finally starting to, to be like, no, I really do want to be free more than anything else. You know, I'm more afraid of not being free than I am of being free. But it's taken me until now to feel that way. I'm curious what your relationship is to the idea of freedom. Like, is that something that, oh, my friends are going to laugh at this because I've been asking people a lot, like, what about being scared of things? Um, 
Have you ever been scared of freedom? <laughs> oh my gosh, all the time, all the time. It's it's like familiar equals safe to ego. Like the part of ourselves that wants to that that is there to keep us alive. Like ego is not a bad thing. Um, it can cause a lot of harm when it's not checked, but there's part of us that it's our brain's job is to keep us alive. And so the familiar equals safe to that part of the brain. And so any, for me, anytime I'm on the precipice of growth or expansion, anytime I know that I need to use my voice and tell the truth about something or show up in a way that is bigger than what I've ever done before, the resistance shows up tenfold. I just moved to a new apartment in Indianapolis. And I, so I, went through a breakup at the end of last year that brought me back here from New York. And I spent, you know, the last few months, like, am I moving back? Am I not? Am I going to stay? Am I not? Like all this fear of commitment. And it is no accident that as soon as I signed a lease here in Indianapolis, I started really struggling with desperately missing New York, which I think anybody would, that city really ruins other cities (laughs) for, for life. But but that, but that's sort of like the resistance to any expansion commitment growing, um, that, that happens for me. Um, something that I have not talked a lot about, um, is that part of my trauma around my sexuality is that, um, experiencing pleasure is really difficult for me, especially with a partner. And I know intellectually that, there's a connection between a fear of letting go because part of me doesn't feel like it's safe or doesn't trust myself that it's safe. Um, But I also know intellectually that if I could, then I would be able to experience freedom. But because I'm stuck in my head doing all of this like calculus around that, um, that's actually what's making it even harder to let go. And like, going back to what we were saying before about like how to have fun, you know, that's part of why alcohol and weed were so convenient. Cause it was like, Oh, I can take this like shortcut to freedom, to a feeling of freedom, even though actually I was just building myself a cage. Um, every time I, I did that. Um, so yeah, I, I am, this is something I am actively like currently struggling with. Um, and I'm so glad you brought it up because it's giving me a lot to think about. Um, And I don't, I I know part of it is just my wiring as somebody who has the brain chemistry that I do. But I also think this is, this applies to anybody, um, that freedom doesn't necessarily feel safe. And so it sometimes feels easier and safer just to stay where we are instead of growing into freedom. And what you said about now you are more afraid of not being free or yeah, of like not experiencing freedom than what that would mean if you did, I think is such a powerful place to be in. And that's somewhere like I am actively like going in and out of, of like how badly do I want to be open and experience life on life's terms? And how badly do I want to stay stuck in this delusion I have that I can control things and keep myself safe no matter what. Yeah. That's just not how it, that's not how it works. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's why my anxiety has reared up in such a big way because it does feel like I 
there's a part of me that really wants to to break free a lot of of a lot of these habitual patterns and habits, ways of thinking and being. Um, but the resistance rears up because that's uncharted territory. And similar to you, like I went, um, I moved out of my parents' house for the first time. I mean, I lived on campus when I was in college that I moved back into my parents' house and I didn't move out until this past fall, you know, so I was 27 and, um, I did some like house sitting before that. So there were long stretches where I was like living alone in someone else's house, but that's still different from actually getting my own place for the first time. And also my boyfriend, um, last year he spent about six months in Montana doing forest firefighting and he just went back again. So he was gone last May through October or almost November, and then he just left again um, in early May. And so I'm definitely like much more on my own than I ever have been before. Um, And there's something about that that's just like, there's so much opportunity. And I think I I have been learning and growing more than I've given myself credit for because this anxiety has come back up. I've I was kind of just beating myself up a lot for that. But then there are moments where I go like, well, wait, though, like I'm actually handling a co- some things like really well, <laughs> all things considered, you know, um, but there is like resistance there because it's scary. It's uncharted, yeah. like you said. Yeah. And something um, my coach, Sarah, kind of picked up on in our call this week that helped me was like, well, first of all, I'm living alone for the first time since 2015. I moved in with my partner that year and uh, my ex-partner that year. And we lived together until we broke up last November. And then I was bouncing around to like a couple different friends' houses while I was trying to make a decision about what to do. And now that I'm in my own space, there's like, I'm literally in my own space, but now there's also this psychological, like emotional space to feel everything and really, really process everything. And part of me really doesn't want to do that. I'd rather obsess in my head about whether I should move back to New York or not, or, you know, what kind of furniture to buy or, you know, stress out about money as opposed to feeling my feelings about the fact that like, (laughs) I mean, what, some of what's coming up is some pretty intense family stuff that has been hard for a while, but now the emotions are much more on the surface. Um, another thing is, I mean, the breakup that I went through was not some, you know, easy mutual thing. I found out he had been cheating on me for a long time. Um, and not just cheating on me, but like really intensely gaslighting me about it. So I'm also now like really having to look at my feelings around that. That's not pleasant. Um, and you know, and, and I, I don't, I think you may have said this at the beginning, or maybe I was listening to something earlier, but that we don't heal in this linear way. It's a spiral. You know, I'm now in a phase where I'm coming back around to all the childhood stuff. I'm it, it's, it's different than it was when I was first looking at it and having to feel through it, but it's there still. Um, my, OCD thoughts are kind of coming back around and looking in a way that they did about four years ago. It's just so interesting how now that I have this 
physical space. Now there's space inside that's like begging me to look at some things when part of me really doesn't want to. <laughs> um, there's so much resistance. And it's like, how can I, The I guess the thing is accepting that these things might keep coming back to us, but can, can we relate to them differently? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, hopefully, and not judge myself. Yeah. Hopefully over time, you know, like um, I love Pema Chodron and I have like a CD of her, some talks and she says at one point that a meditation teacher of hers told her, you know, it's like standing in the ocean and a big wave comes and knocks you down and then you, you get up and then eventually another wave comes and knocks you down and it just keeps happening like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <But he> says, <laughs> and like everyone laughs and she's like, but you know, he says eventually the waves seem a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it's such a hard pill to swallow to be like, yeah, it's not that the waves are going to stop coming. Like, I keep waiting for the waves to stop coming, you know? Yeah, <laughs> to have it all figured out. And yeah, I'm just and floating now, you know? Like, Yeah. And it's like, I have to find that middle place between, like, because then my mind will just go like, all right, so I guess just forever I'm just going to keep getting knocked down and wiped out, you know? And it's like, well, no, that's not that's not entirely it either. It's not that you have to keep getting you have to keep responding in the same way or having the same experience. It's just that life is never going to be entirely on your terms. (laughs) Yeah. And you don't have to do it alone. That I I forget all the time that I can reach for help. That is so huge. I think (laughs) I can call my friends. I can go to an appointment or a meeting. Yeah. Five years ago when I was 22 and like going, going through a really bad breakup myself and you know, just graduated and like not knowing what, which way was up and which way was down. Like, I really was just like, I need to do everything by myself. I need to be totally independent and I need to be able to like yeah. sit in silence all day with my thoughts. Oh my gosh. That you know, like torture. <laughs> yeah. And it's like now I'm like realizing how much I need other people and we all need each other and like how, like, kind of like I think you said something about finding a balance between knowing when you need to like watch Gilmore Girls for a couple hours and knowing when you need to go for a walk or whatever it's like I am not I do not have to muscle through this alone and in fact I can't like I think that's the thing I can't and I'm and there's nothing better than finding being with a friend and just like laughing about, you know when like being going from being super anxious to seeking out a friend and being with or even if you know I have a phone call with my boyfriend Martin and if I'm super anxious like I'll go like if I can make him laugh right now Mm. I'm gonna feel so much better something about making him laugh and being able to kind of like be like see the humor in whatever I'm freaking out about like really as soon as I hear his laugh and then I start laughing you know like it's like that is medicine it really is yeah it's like once you get it out of your head and into the world in any form sometimes even just journaling for me can do that um and also what you just said about like making him laugh 
getting out of myself mm-hmm. and doing something for somebody else. Yes. I am so lucky that I have all these friends who have these very sweet dogs. I'll be like, can mm. I come walk your dog? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, can I run an errand for you? And just being of service to somebody else. I, I think there's a balance with that because it can become kind of like an addiction where yeah. it's like that codependent thing of trying yeah. to manage and fix everybody else. But actually being of service and being like, hey, do you want me to hang out with your kids for a couple hours so you can go run errands or mm-hmm. Um, you know, even just being, even just smiling and making conversation with somebody at the grocery store or responding to the, like there was a kid, um, selling cookies outside of, um, the grocery store I go to. And in the past, I'm one of those people who will just blow past people. I'll have my headphones in. It's a very New York mindset of just like, I don't want to make eye contact with anybody in Indiana. It comes across as a little more rude. Um, and I, I made a point of like taking my headphones out and asking him what he was selling them for. And just being present with somebody. Um, cause I think anxiety, it's a very self-centered, yeah. um, disease. And I don't mean to say people are bad or self-centered no, I, people for I, having it, but yeah, it's a very self-involved thing. And yes. anytime I can break that, um, I feel a lot better. And part of that too, is the, I, I feel like I keep saying I'm so lucky, but I really am. I'm so grateful that in the work I get to do, I have amazing collaborators. So even the stuff I have to show up every day for that I get paid to do, um, being in connection with other people who care about the same things, that also really, really helps. I think before substance or anything or work or anything else, perfectionism was really mm-hmm. like my first addictive behavior pattern. And um, I'm learning through a lot of the people I collaborate with it's actually an extension of all of these other systems we live in and, you know, capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy. And it's, it's a way of keeping us separate um, because we're meant to be interdependent. We're meant to live in community. We're meant to be able to lean on each other because nobody can do it all alone. Um, And the lie that perfectionism was telling me was that if I am perfect, then I'll be loved it's, it's like I wanted that connection and inner, like interdependence and community. But the way I was trying to get it was actually making that even harder. Just like what we were talking about with alcohol or drugs or whatever. It's like this thing that we want to make us more connected is creating disconnection. And it's just so um, ironic that what I was reaching for my whole life was actually making it harder to get the thing I really wanted. I've kind of realized like, oh, I definitely have this like purity hang up that when I was a kid, it manifested as like, you know, I I grew up Catholic. And so I had the vocabulary of like sin, like I'm going to be like Mary, you know, this perfect, unblemished, good girl, you know, Mm -hmm. and now I feel like I have to be really careful with it in terms of like wellness because there's so much in like the wellness culture about things being clean or not clean or toxic, you know, and like mm-hmm. good or bad. And um, it's interesting to watch like the different clothing that these things can wear at different stages in our life. And it can be this very old, this very old habit or way of thinking or being that can put on different clothing like you think like you're over that thing, but then you re- like for me, I've been like, oh, I need to be careful with this, you know. Yeah, it's like whack a mole. Mm-hmm. 
And what you're saying about wellness too, it's so interesting because all of the stuff that we're sold, you know, about like how to be well Mm -hmm. and clean and pure and all that stuff, it's so individualistic too. Like it's very much like just for me and I'm going to be this like isolated little island of mm-hmm. perfect health Yeah. when actually we forget, you know, we, we are the planet. Like what's happening to the planet is happening to us yeah. and vice versa. And so it's like, if we're only consuming things to make ourselves well and not looking at collectively what's going on and not to mention like communities that can't afford yeah, to buy these don't products. Have that option. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's not really well being. I mean, that's, that's, the whole message behind what Carrie created with Citizen Well. It's like our well-being is bound in each other's. Um, and so, yeah, there is no separation. That's what yoga teaches us. There is no separation between self and, like, the whole of everybody in the planet. And um, so it's just it, it's just interesting, though, how what I, what I keep coming back to in our conversation is that the thought patterns and the false beliefs and the unhealthy behaviors and the ways we cope and the addictions – they all end up actually contributing to all of these bigger problems. Yes. It's like we have we've been brainwashed in this way. And so not only are we like challenged by brain chemistry and genetics and wiring that might make these things play out in our individual lives, but we're fighting a, back against a culture that is intent on keeping the status quo intact. And so it's just when I put it that way, I'm like, oh my God, this is exhausting. But <laughs> what's really cool though, is that there is power in working on it together. And that even just having this conversation, and even if this reaches one other person, I feel like if it is in service of their healing, like that is going to make a difference. So yeah, it's, it's just about healing, not just the individual and the community, but also like the collective. Yeah. And it's like, can we be open to each other? Can we find each other in it? Yeah. Because you have to break past that belief system of I have to have it all figured out. I have to do it all for myself because compassion requires like connection. It's not, it's not like sympathy. Sympathy is like, oh, I feel so bad for you and let me help you. And that's not equal. It's not on the same level as I get it. I feel what you're feeling. I am suffering with you because your experience and my experience are not separate. Um, But that takes a level of self-awareness and emotional intelligence that um, I don't know that we are yet at like a critical mass of people practicing. Um, So that's why I'm just like super grateful for conversations like this because it's, I live in this bubble where this is what I talk about all day, every day, you know, <laughs> with the friends I have and the work I do. And, but, but I know that that's not, not the case for everybody. It's a fine line to walk because I also realize that the suffering I'm dealing with compared to somebody who doesn't have the power and privilege that I do, there is a difference there. Um, and my healing matters and I deserve to be okay too. Um, and it's like a million ands. And I, because I have access to healing, because I have insurance that will cover therapy or I have the cash to pay for it, because I have the luxury of getting into recovery, like I, I do have a responsibility to pay it forward. So it's, 
so it's really, but it's tricky. That doesn't mean I don't deserve it. It, yeah. So it's like, I am no more and no less deserving of help than other people. And I have a responsibility to make that available to more people because yeah. I have it. That's beautifully yeah. said. Yeah. It's like not black and white. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's kind of, that was the whole thing that I was excited to, to go into in this episode is that none of this is black and white. Mm-hmm. It's all like, and, 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 yep. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like you were just saying, it's a lot of ands. Do you have time for one more question? Yes. Okay. Please. What is something that you're learning about or growing into right now? Honestly, I think it is around this, the and thing. The, mm-hmm. the nothing is black and white. Most of life is in the gray. Most of me is in the gray. I've also, what first came to mind when you were asking this question was I've also been getting into tarot lately. Mm. Um, I've been really and, intrigued yeah. by that recently. Uh, it's so, yeah, I think it's really important to find a good teacher or like somebody to follow and learn from who's not this very like top down way of explaining tarot. Cause the little book that comes with like the decks sometimes can be replicating all of these systems that we're talking about. Like yeah. the one I got, if I go off the little book, it's very patriarchal and doesn't help me and actually makes my anxiety worse. But when I mm. listen to teachings from this, um, there's a woman named Lindsay Mack. Um, her, I think her business is like wild soul healing or tarot for the wild soul. She has a great podcast that I listen to. When I listen to her interpretation, that's more feminine. I'm like, Oh, okay. And so it's, it, it's become a tool of like strengthening my intuition mm. and connecting to it. And I'm learning, you know, it's not predicting the future, but it's, reflecting where I am right now and giving me like medicine that I need right now for whatever's coming up. So that's been really interesting and a really great, actually it's become a daily practice at this point um, of letting go of needing an answer and just being with whatever is here right now. Mm. So that's, that's been really fun. Yeah. That's really cool. Cause I recently have realized like I have a really hard time committing even just to like any practice because I start to intellectualize so much that I find a problem with like anything. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) So like, yeah, like my therapist gave me a CD of guided imagery, like visualizations recently. And one of them was like a safe place visualization. And I literally, A, couldn't pick a safe place. And then B, when I tried to, I was like, this tree that I'm leaning against is really uncomfortable and I think there are ticks in the grass. Like, I literally couldn't, even in my imagination, like, commit to a spot. (laughs) Like, relax. I'm laughing and reacting because, like, I relate to that so much. And, like, (laughs) like at yoga classes, a lot of times the teacher will say at the beginning, like, set an intention. I'm like, yeah. Crap, what's my intention going to be? And then I obsess it. Yeah. So I totally get it. Same, same wavelength. <laughs> That's yeah. really funny. And, you know, for me too, it, it's, it's the same way with 12 step stuff. I, for me, I really have to take what works and leave behind yep. the rest. Yeah. That's not to say that there aren't certain pieces. I, I'm sensitive about saying that because with recovery, I, I never want to lead somebody in a direction that's going to lead them to like a relapse or um, keep them stuck in using longer than they need to be. So if you are hearing this and feel like you need recovery and 12 steps seems like a place you can start 
do it. Follow the recommendations as much as you can. It will help. Um, <laughs> that's my disclaimer. At the same time, there are just certain things I need to leave behind. And with tarot, for example, it's like letting go of that little booklet that came with it and mm -hmm. following a teacher who resonates with me. Like we really, everything you're saying reminds me of just it it comes down to connecting to your inner wisdom yeah, and what tools are going to help with that versus what's something external that it's like everything has to be filtered through what you know works for you. Yeah. Sometimes there's a letting go and just trusting that somebody might know more than me, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance. Okay. Well, I've kept you for so long. I could have no, talked to you for like so great three more hours. Um, Me too. This has been awesome. Thank you for sharing everything that you shared tonight. And even our, our conversation that we had last week, like just talking about the podcast, like some of the things that you said to me were just very helpful for me personally when I was sharing stuff with you. So thank yeah. you. I really, really oh, appreciate it. Thank you. And hopefully this isn't the last time we do this. Let's, I um, know. let's keep doing it. I would love to do this again. Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials Podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn. <laughs>